be crystal clear about what outcome you're trying to achieve through your programs. And remember that the way you frame that outcome can have a pretty dramatic effect on the approaches you consider. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where we discuss insights and ideas for how to protect your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, and I'm joined today by David Kaufman, who is the Vice President and Director of Safety and Security at CNA Corporation. David, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, fantastic to have you here. And I know our focus today is on eliminating the preconceived notions that many people have when it comes to emergency response plans. But before we begin, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your career background? Sure. I've spent about 25 years working in the areas of public safety, emergency management, and homeland security. As you just indicated, I currently serve as the vice president for safety and security at CNA. I'm also a faculty member at Georgetown University in their graduate program for emergency and disaster management and serve as a subject matter expert for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Previously, I served as the Associate Administrator for Policy, Program Analysis, and International Affairs at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and before that, in several other senior positions in the Department of Homeland Security. Fantastic. That's great context. And can you give us just a brief overview of the work that CNA does, as well as just maybe a short synopsis of your role there? Absolutely. CNA is a nonprofit national security research and analysis firm. We're headquartered in Arlington, Virginia. The company is comprised of two operating units, two business units, the Center for Naval Analyses, which is the federally funded research and development center for the Department of Navy and the Marine Corps, and the Institute for Public Research, which is where I work. IPR houses eight centers of excellence dedicated to advancing the safety and security of the nation. I oversee our work in the areas of emergency management, homeland security, public safety, and public health. So that includes support to some 450 police agencies around the country, emergency preparedness support for major metro areas such as the Seattle region, Houston, the District of Columbia, as well as a a variety of work for the federal departments of Homeland Security, Justice, Health and Human Services, and FEMA. Yeah, if you would talk about that a bit more, what what are the types of organizations or agencies that come to CNA for help? Is it more on the, the government side? Is it state and local? Is it private enterprises? So CNA is chartered as a public interest, not-for-profit corporation. So we work predominantly with government organizations and and government agencies at all levels, federal, state, and local, as well as with uh, nonprofit organizations and foundations. As you, you may have just gathered, we cover issues ranging from defense and security studies to counterterrorism, cybersecurity, emergency preparedness, public health, criminal justice. But... Despite the fact that a lot of our work is funded by government entities, that does not mean that our focus is exclusively on government. Our work seeks to benefit the public good. In many instances, we are tackling complex problems with direct implications for business and industry, as well as the public writ large. A good example is work we're doing advancing strategies to enhance supply chain resilience in large-scale disasters. We're working with a number of clients right now at, at the federal level and at the state and local level 
to improve the delivery of life-sustaining commodities to disaster survivors during acute events, not necessarily through enlarging functional capacities of government to deliver relief operations, but through better integrating situational awareness among government agencies and private sector suppliers of food, water, fuel, et cetera, and pursuing interventions that can help speed restoration pre-existing commodity flow networks uh, in disaster affected communities. So it really does end up squarely in the multi-sectoral environment. So these are pretty large scale problems that you're tackling. Is that a fair assessment? Oftentimes, yeah. I mean, you know, the the harder the problems, the more interesting they are. Yeah, that's very true. If they were easy, they wouldn't be that much fun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And people probably wouldn't pay us to do anything with them either. So. <laughs> right. Well, how do you think about your work? What's unique about it? So we want to have a direct impact. We're very much an applied organization. CNA was founded on the philosophy that direct work with operators and decision makers in the field is key to understanding and benefiting complex dynamic operations. So we bring scientific approaches, scientific approaches and sophisticated analytic methods, but we nest those in a, in a fairly nuanced understanding of the operating environment that our clients are living in every day. And we work very hard to generate meaningful insights and practical implementable solutions. I spent a lot of my time in government, right? I've had a lot of solutions brought forward that were nice in theory, but not practical or workable in the real world. We don't aspire to that. We want to we want to make a material and significant direct benefit in our work. So wherever we can, we put our analysts in the field to observe operations directly, witness constraints firsthand gather data that can help us make those tangible improvements. Earlier this year, for example, we deployed analysts to, I think it was 56 community vaccination centers in 28 states to capture on the ground best practices and lessons learned and feed those directly back into ongoing operations, right? So that's an example of, you know, a, a mission execution activity that, that no one had done before in that way in this country in decades. And so we, we sought to have real-time you know, direct improvement on those operations. Incidentally, in talking with program executives from that sponsor afterwards, one of the things they reflected on was how valuable it was not just to have independent teams whose job it was, was to sort of identify areas for improvement, but to have teams who didn't leave the site until the improvements they identified had been implemented. Ah. And so that, that real carry through to implementation, that's something that we really enjoy. And wherever we can, want to have that kind of material effect. And then you get to see the fruits of your labor directly, right? You, you get to see the impact of your work. And so our people really enjoy that as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And something you said early on there really interested me, which is this idea of theory versus reality. When you're working with people out in the field, how do you get them to realize that they can overanalyze and over-engineer things that is just not going to work out when a disaster strikes? Do you take them through exercises to get them to realize that? Or can you just tell them, hey, guys, this is not going to work. And do they believe you? Like, how do you see success with that? So there's no single answer to that. But you, you we definitely want to try to focus on what's real world practicality for the issue. So uh, I'll take work that some of my colleagues do, operational testing and evaluation for weapon systems for the military. Right, so it's all it's all well and good to look at the theoretical capabilities of a new weapon system. What is what did the spec sheet say that that system is able to do? But in the real world, that system is is being employed with a legacy force, with existing training that they have in the context of other legacy systems and operational plans. 
And so you, you got to go back and look at what is the real world effect of that system look like. And so there, there are ways that you can, you can run simulations to test for that, but also, you know, look at if you want to see realization of greater impact, you know, how might you need to make adjustments to the existing protocols that are currently in place, um, whether it's the plans or, or, or the trading regime or, or whatnot. So that, that's one way to approach that. I think one of the challenges that we struggle with, all of us, not, not CNA or, or any one client, right? But most organizations, generally speaking, are operating with an implicit assumption that the future will look fairly similar to the present, mm-hmm. especially the near-term future. And it's hard to create mental separation from what we know as truth today in our current experience. And yet, right, again and again and again, we see examples, we're living through one of them right now. Actually, we're living through several of them right now concurrently, but where life throws us giant curveballs and things change really, really rapidly in unexpected ways. And, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta be open to that broader environment and be able to recognize when things are deviating from your baseline assumptions. Okay. So clearly that's a challenge, but what are some of the other main challenges that you and your team face as you develop solutions for some of these really complex problems you're trying to tackle? I think one of them is is recency bias. And I think that shows up in a couple of ways, right? It shows up in the way we just discussed that we have a tendency as humans to implicitly assume that the future is, is going to look more or less like the present, when in fact, we know that won't be the case. But it also shows up in terms of how we plan and how we prepare. You know, we spend a lot of time in emergency preparedness, emphasizing planning, training, exercises as important tools for strengthening capabilities. But generally speaking, we use those to codify and test existing plans and procedures for events we're already familiar with. Um, and so they don't serve us as well when we're dealing with novelty. And I think that's a really important challenge. Recognizing, number one, when the event you're engaged in is fundamentally different from what you're used to or what you've planned for or your baseline assumptions uh, about what you're trying to achieve and then adapting. So I have worked for some acolytes, if you will, of, uh, of John Boyd. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with John Boyd's OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. I think the emphasis is often on the deciding and the acting, but the places where we really need to improve is on the observation and orientation to context, mm. you know, and, and really challenging our underlying assumptions about what we think we're likely to be called upon to face building that adaptive capacity at an organizational level. So uh, I'll just give you a sort of at a, at a strategic level, uh, an example, right? So, so let's just look at FEMA for over the last couple of years. So FEMA has been called on in the last two years, FEMA has been called on to support, I don't know how many hurricanes, storms, wildfires, tornadoes, floods, all hazards it's used to dealing with on a constant pace, right? It hasn't really had seasonality in that environment, but things it's used to. But at the same time, it's also been asked in that window to lead the nation's pandemic response, support a humanitarian response to the migrant crisis on the Southwest border and react to the cyber attack on the colonial pipeline. FEMA never planned for many of those missions and, and some would say FEMA was never designed to support them, but the agencies faced them nonetheless. Aspects of what it's been asked to do, it's been able to reach to its existing plans and protocols and procedures and draw upon that. And in other cases, it's had to fabricate 
wholly new things overnight, wholly new approaches or wholly new programs overnight in order to respond to exigent circumstances uh, in that moment of crisis. So that's what I mean when I talk about anticipatory capacity and organizational agility, uh, adaptive capacity. And so we, we really focus on approaches for building that, for broadening out our aperture about what we might be asked to do and about how we, how we build um, sort of that leadership capacity internally to, to recognize when what we're engaged in is deviating from what we assumed it would be and, and act accordingly. Um, and that's hard to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Is, is or, uh, people listening to this show think about how they should plan their disaster recovery and business continuity and how they're going to address things when things go wrong. It's okay to come up with specific scenarios and say, okay, what would we do if this happened? But that shouldn't be the real focus. That's just the exercise to help you get the muscle memory. The real focus should be on developing your overall strategy on how you're going to deal with the situation when you get thrown into it because you cannot predict the future. No, that's right. And if you plan too rigidly to the specific scenario, you risk losing the value of, of those plans. The real value, right? Eisenhower is, is often quoted as, you know, plans are nothing, planning is everything. Right. Right. And, and planning is the opportunity to work through the really thorny problems in a safe environment. Right. And, you know, it, it's easy to lose sight of that when, you know, we're writing, you know, time hack, detailed, action based response plans, for example, it's easy to lose sight about the, you know, what's the really hard thing here that we got to grapple with and how do we, how do we use the planning process to test out and formulate different courses of action, regardless of whether they make it into a final plan, we're more likely to have them available in our back pocket and able to mm -hmm. pull from when we're suddenly faced with a circumstance that our plan doesn't fit. Well, with that in mind, do you have an example of a specific scenario when some kind of recency bias or preconceived notion or just a blindly executed routine complicated an emergency response instead of making it better? The example I'd focus on would probably be the food mission launched in the response to Hurricane Maria in 2017. Mm, yeah. So as you'll recall, right, Maria followed pretty shortly on the heels of Irma. Which, which rolled across Puerto Rico and knocked out a, a power to a large section of the island. And then Maria flattened the grid. So the island went dark, right? You can look at the satellite imagery. It's, it's light one day and it's, it's, it's almost entirely dark the next. The, grid, the telecommunication systems are down. So connectivity is low, rightfully so. Commonwealth authorities and FEMA and, and response organizations assumed the worst about impacts. So unsurprisingly, there's a large push to move, to move food onto the island. So I'll just focus on that example. So pretty, pretty quickly, there's a, a target factor set of 6 million meals a day that initially comes up as requests from local authorities to Commonwealth authorities and then to FEMA. But the food mission that's launched in the immediate aftermath is seeking to feed virtually the entire island of Puerto Rico two meals a day. So 3.4 million people on the island, 6 million meals a day is the planning target because no one knows what the circumstances are. So, you, you, you know, better to launch big quickly than, you know, to hedge and wait and then find out that you actually needed to be big and now you're that much further behind. Right. So here's where it gets interesting. Over about six months, FEMA successfully moved 60 million meals to Puerto Rico and delivered about 30 million of those to Puerto Ricans. I'm not a mathematician. I'm <laughs> fairly confident that 
60 million meals over six months is not 6 million meals a day. No. But you did not read news articles and you didn't see Anderson Cooper in his black t-shirt down there covering stories of hundreds of thousands of people dying of starvation in Puerto Rico. Right. And the reason you didn't see that is because the grocery sector demonstrated astonishing resilience in the aftermath mm. of that storm. Most stores were open in three to five days. And within a few weeks, the sector as a whole was transacting sales at about 125% of pre-landfall levels. But, but no one in the public sector relief operations channel really was aware of that. Local requests for food were still coming up from local government authorities, and FEMA was still pushing food. So you have this misalignment that's occurring between the action we're taking based on a set of assumptions about impacts and what on the ground reality was becoming, you know, with respect to real needs. That's not to say that people weren't hungry and that FEMA's food didn't sustain lives in, in sure. key places it did. But, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020. But we would have been a lot better off recognizing some of those things earlier, decreasing the push on food and getting more telecoms restoration teams and equipment, you know, into that scarce cargo space in those early weeks. Than, than what was happening. So you really need to rely on that feedback loop. The sensors need to be out there detecting what's going on, and then that should really influence what you do next, not just put a plan into place and let it roll out. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and I think it goes to how narrow or how broad is your sensor network and is your sense of what you're looking at, right? Is, is in FEMA's instance, in that example, right, the demand signal is coming from level of government through level of government. Mm. But the grocery sales indicators, those are happening in a different, those are different channels. Yeah. Those are different market signals. And FEMA FEMA's historically responding to requests for assistance from governors. So the governmental channel is functioning in parallel to those private market channels. And you just didn't have visibility happening. And so what, you know, that, that's probably happened in just about every disaster to, to greater or lesser degrees. The circumstances of Maria made it really stark and easy to recognize and start to draw new, new insights from, you know, as a result. And, and I think there's some pretty profound applications of those lessons that, that we've been engaged in since. Well, you talked about the scale of that incident that occurred with Hurricane Maria. It seems like the scale of emergencies has become really bigger <laughs> over the last couple of years with all these things that are going on. I, I don't know if that's just because the storms we're experiencing are bigger or we just have more people living in areas that can be devastated than we ever had before. But in your opinion, is this just a moment in time or is there really a lasting change? This is not just a moment in time. Okay. You, you are absolutely right. We are seeing more and more bigger disasters. Uh, I'll give you some data to demonstrate this. So this is, this is NOAA's data. NOAA tracks the number of billion dollar plus disaster events in the United States and has uh, dating back to at least 1980. So since 1980, there have been 308 discrete events, each of which cost in excess of a billion dollars in, wow. in normalized dollars. That's staggering. Cumulative cost for all of those is uh, almost 2.1 trillion uh, across those 308 events. So nearly one third of those costs have been experienced in the past five years. Wow. So I just gave you numbers for 42 years, nearly a third of those costs in the last five. In the 31 years from 1980 to 2010, there were $152 billion plus disasters 
And there was only a single year, 1998, where 10 or more of those events occurred in one year. Over the last 11 years, we've seen more than 10 events in 10 of those 11 years. We've actually experienced $156 billion events in the last 11 years, which is more than in the previous 31, and an average of about 15 and a half a year. And 21 is, 2021 is not over yet. Right? So like that, we're still going. So climate change is obviously a key driver of that trend, right? We are experiencing intensifying storms, intensifying deluges, more droughts, greater wildfire risk, prolonged wildfire seasons, et cetera. Everything that you're seeing in the news, that's what's happening. But it's not the only driver. And you, and you rightfully pointed this out. Yeah, the U.S. population has continued to grow. It's also continued to age and it's continued to urbanize. Mm -hmm. And people are increasingly concentrating in dense metro regions in disaster prone areas, which in turn produces larger and more complex impacts when those disasters strike. So Hurricane Harvey, right? The, 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 the top line story from Harvey is biblical levels of rainfall, yeah. right? As, meta, as much as 60 inches of rain. I mean, it's gonna flood no matter where you are with 60 inches of rain. But that occurred on top of a metro area that was that's the fourth largest in the country and had grown by more than 35% in the previous 17 years. Yeah. So the fourth largest county in the country, Harris County, grew by more than 35% in the 17 years leading up to Harris County. That's not a 35% harder problem when Hurricane Harvey hits. Yeah. So the confluence of those trends. You know, and and one other factor I would add is, you know, recent decades have seen a pretty astonishing concentration of income and wealth in this country. The richest uh, tenth of a percent of the U.S. population now owns more wealth than the bottom 90%. We haven't seen that level of wealth concentration since the 1920s and the 1930s. And that's only intensified during the pandemic, right? The, uh, the richest 1% of Americans have gained over $7 trillion in, in the last three quarters of 2020. And that's at the same time as a huge portion of the population has relied on expanded unemployment benefits and eviction moratoriums in order to get by. I bring this up because disasters are not democratic. They disproportionately affect the poor and the disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at these trends in concert, right, we see increasing hazard risk as a function of climate change, increasing hazard exposure due to demographic changes, and increasing population vulnerability all happening at the same time. So I think it's safe to assume that, that what we've been experiencing over the past five to 10 years is at best a new normal and at worst, just the floor for, for what's to come. Yeah. So it's here to stay. Well, with that in mind, how can our audience really contextualize these concerns for their organizations? What can they do about it, if anything? A few years ago, I was part of a lot of conversations where emergency managers reflected on the tremendous challenges associated with the the 2017 hurricane season, but largely talked about that as an outlier year, a one-off season. And I think that's what we need to change for all the reasons we just discussed, yeah. right? We need to re-baseline our understanding of the risk environment and then ask ourselves and our organizations hard questions about the implications. What does this new normal mean for our missions, for our infrastructure, for our operations, regardless of whether we're answering those questions you know, from the standpoint of a government agency or a private company. And I don't think we need to make that terribly complex either. It could be as simple as take fill in the blank disasters, whatever's most affected your organization recently, 
the pandemic, the California wildfires, the current supply chain disruptions, and then sort of ask if we knew we'd be facing that type of disruption repeatedly on a regular basis, what would we have designed differently about how we're structured or how we operate? I don't think we're likely to spend very long before we start uncovering potentially significant actions that we could take that would build our adaptive capacity and enhance our resilience. So do you see the, the pendulum that has shifted way to the corner on just-in-time business operations and inventory pulling back just a little bit based on what people are seeing, or would it at least be wise to pull back from that just a tad? I certainly would be wise, in my judgment anyway, but I hope we see it pull back. I think that that, that level of emphasis on just-in-time introduces brittleness into the systems that large-scale shocks exploit. Yeah. And because those systems are so large and so complex now and touch so many areas, the effects are really big or can be really big from those shocks. And, and we need to think about that. Um, and we need, to, we need to, to take small actions where we can, you know, to try to, to boost our reserves, if you will, build in some buffer to insulate ourselves. And I think over time, we will likely see some restructuring of those larger systems too, because there's a business cost uh, to what people are experiencing right now. Yep, without a doubt. Well, we like to close out each episode by asking our guests to provide the listeners with a practical tip or best practice that they can take back to their organizations. So in your mind, what can our audience do today to make a positive impact on their overall emergency management programs? I would say three things. First, be clear, be crystal clear about what outcome you're trying to achieve through your programs. And remember that the way you frame that outcome can have a pretty dramatic effect on the approaches you consider. To go back to that Puerto Rico example, is the outcome for FEMA to deliver food to feed the population on the island? Or is the outcome to ensure that people on the island have sufficient access to food that they don't go hungry or starve? It's a subtle difference, but the former focuses on FEMA's direct actions, whereas the latter takes a broader systemic view and brings more potential partners to the table. Second, resources. We all operate in a resource-constrained environment, and I've watched numerous times as organizations bang their head against the wall trying to obtain resources for, for a specific problem that they're unlikely to ever really get. Bang my head against that wall a lot myself. You know, the answer doesn't always lie in the most obvious solution. I like to quote a longtime friend and colleague, uh, Ella Stanley, on this because he had a great turn of phrase. If, if you don't have enough resources to solve a problem, you probably don't have enough people around your planning table. So who else has a vested interest in the issue that you're grappling with? Who else might you engage? In the response to Hurricane Harvey in 2017, thousands of people were rescued from their roofs where they were trapped by rising floodwaters. Some were rescued by first responders, but many more were rescued by fellow citizens in their boats. Citizens who responded because local authorities recognized that they didn't have enough water rescue resources at their disposal and they put out a call for help. Yeah. And finally, be curious. Seek to learn how things work in your own broader operating environments, who the actors are, what motivates them, ask questions. Most people like to talk about what they do. And in my experience, there are, there are relatively few truly new ideas in the world. Most innovation is, is recognizing and observing, or observing and then recognizing proven practice in one domain and um, seeing how it could be adapted or applied to another. 
but that doesn't happen if, if we all just go through life with our heads down and, and our eyes focused on what's directly in front of us. So make time and space to step back, to look around, to notice change happening in your operating environment and to be curious about what's, what it might mean, who else might be affected, what their interests might be, where might there be some new opportunities. Out of the box thinking, indeed. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate all of your time, expertise, and advice. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. If anyone out there listening has follow-up questions or wants to connect with you, what is the best way for them to find you out there? They can find me on LinkedIn, uh, or they can just drop me a note. Uh, my email is, is kaufmand at cna.org, K-A-U-F-M-A-N-D at cna.org. I'm always interested in, in connecting with new people, gaining new perspective on the issues. So thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks again for taking the time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast. And for the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.